she's productive. And so it is very weird for someone like that to have a conservatorship. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke. Uh, joining me today is my fellow co-host Lee Kuna. Hey, yeah. And also joining us today is special guest pod person, Dr. Elena Papianis. This is a new title for me. Yeah, I mean, for listeners of the show, they might be uh, confused at this, thinking, "Wait, we've heard Dr. Elena Papianis a lot before." But we have some important news. Elena has been promoted. From- <laughs> co-host to special guest pod person. And the reason is, Elena, you've got some projects that are taking up a lot of your time. And so I figured before we get into this, why don't you talk about those? Oh, uh, yeah. So I've just started, the pandemic has sort of unleashed um, my creative side between uh, making TikToks, which is less important, but um, I've started to do some writing, basically personal essays about some of my more recent journeys, whether it's coming out or um, or realizing as a people pleaser, which I just actually got another uh, pitch accepted to write personal essay about that. Um, so yeah, I just have these writing projects that are taking up strength to take up more time, and I feel like uh, they need I need to devote more energy to them because I do really feel strongly about them. However, for and- the uh, the topic that we're talking about today, we really needed Elena to come back to talk uh, with oh, us yeah. because this is one of, I think, Lee, you have many, many strengths. And I'm going <laughs> to say that this area is not one of them. This is really not one of them. I know so little and I actually work hard to not accidentally learn stuff about pop culture. Like I just don't know anything about anything. I have a feeling that Lee is going to be quite shocked by the end of this. That always turns out to be the case whenever we start off with a pop culture conspiracy and Lee always explains that he doesn't care about pop culture. By the end of it, we tend to bring him over to the fact that it's an important thing to discuss. I think he's going to have a free Britney shirt by by the end of the summer. (laughs) I think we all will. Yeah, I think we all will. We've looked at a bunch of celebrity-based conspiracy theories. I mean, and the fact that the ones we've looked at have been so iconic that I just need to provide the first name of these people. And I think everyone immediately knows who we're talking about. Marilyn, Kurt, Diana. And I, we're going to add another one today because, again, this is a, a celebrity who is is so big in sort of our cultural imagination that we just have to say her first name, Brittany, and we immediately know who we're talking about. I was not a big Britney Spears fan back in the day. I mean, depends how far back we go. I did watch the Mickey Mouse Club a little bit as a kid. I'm not sure that she was on it when I was watching it. I didn't listen to uh, her music in the late 90s. I already identified then, even though it was another version of pop culture, but identified with a kind of um, an, a quote unquote underground pop culture. So you know, like things like, later electronic music, but before that, like punk and grunge. And so figures like Britney Spears and Madonna, they were like the antithesis of the kind of pop culture I was into, even when I was into pop culture. But you couldn't avoid it. I mean, I knew her, I knew her songs back then, even though I didn't want to. And I knew who she was. And yeah. I mean, you could probably um, sing a couple lines from one of her songs right now. I, I don't think I could. You'd have to help me. You'd have to start. I bet she could. Elena, were you, because you're a bit younger than us, uh, were you a Britney fan? Like when she came out in like 98, 99, for me, uh, I watched her video and I thought, ah, oh, okay, I'm too old for pop culture now. Because I, at that point, I was an old man of 23. I knew of it, but I wasn't a huge fan. Um, growing up, I remember being a New Kids fan when I was little. Like they sure. had my heart, you know. Especially Joey, I had a crush on Joey. Was he the, um, the bad boy? He was the young one. He was okay. like the cute, so he was like adorable the one. Face. He was the baby face. He was adorable. I, you know, it was of my era, but I, I wasn't like a huge Britney fan. I wasn't wearing like shirts and stuff, but I knew all the songs and sang all them, and was like into it as much as I, you know, could be. And certainly, all of us were aware of her as a celebrity. And our relationship to celebrity is such a complex and sort of slightly messed up one. It's kind of like, and this is going to appeal to Lee, I think, because this is one of his study areas. 
they're kind of like modern gods. In the secular world, the celebrities become our gods. They live these lives that are beyond the understanding of us mere mortals. They're like existing in this sort of weird, rarefied realm. They interact with each other, but we're aware of them and we can see them, but they can't really see us from where they are. We know about them. They don't know about us. And we all, we all sort of feel like we have a window into their lives, even though, of course, that window is a creation of public relations and marketing. You can't understand modern culture without talking about celebrity. It's such a crucial aspect of how we understand our place in the world. And I think these days, increasingly, as we, we're in a, a post-industrial economy, celebrity seems like, for a lot of people, one of the few currencies left that still means anything. Pop culture is one of those things that is so accessible. And it is one of those things as well that you get these huge waves of like hysteria around these these pop icons as they come up, right? Like it's, you know, in the same way that people screamed watching the Beatles, like that's the same kind of hysteria you get um, whenever one of the sort of the newest pop icon comes up. And then you get, you know, a whole generation of people imitating them, dressing like them, getting their haircuts, all those kinds of things. Like they really are, uh, you know, having posters on their wall in the same way that people would have icons on their, on their wall. Totally. Like it is this kind of worship that happens. So this story, the Britney Spears story, it, it shares a lot of the themes from the other stories that we've looked at in pop culture. Uh, the paparazzi are going to show up. Mental illness is going to show up. Substance abuse, family issues, artistic control. What I'm hoping, though, is that this story is different from the other three stories we've looked at, and I hope that it remains different. Because one of the big differences, we've lost Marilyn, we've lost Kurt, mm-hmm. and we've lost Diana. Britney Spears, as of this recording, is still alive. Those stories all ended tragically. There's still a chance this one maybe doesn't have to. And so here's hoping. So why don't we get into uh, a little bit of the biography of Britney Spears? Because I think to understand her, you have to sort of look at where she came from and and sort of a little bit of her history. So why don't we get into that? Absolutely. Why don't we start in 1981 in the tiny city of Macomb, Mississippi, birthplace of Bo Diddley. <laughs> wow, didn't know that fact. From a young age, Brittany was very talented and very interested in like dance and voice and gymnastics and all sorts of performance. Um, she said early on, um, I was in my own world. Basically, when she did those things, I found what I was supposed to do at an early age. And that was very apparent to her, um, her parents who helped foster this, well, especially her mom. Um, so when she was eight, she was introduced to a New York City talent agent who was impressed with her singing and um, and they enrolled her in like a professional performing arts school. And actually they ended up moving to New York City to help foster her career there and her talent. And then her career took off in 1992 when she was cast on the Mickey Mouse Club. And there she was um, on the show with other future pop stars like Justin Timberlake, Christina Aguilera, uh, Ryan Gosling, Carrie Russell. But the show was then canceled a few years later and she returned back to Mississippi and lived what is, you know, considered to be a kind of a normal life. She enrolled in high school there, but was apparently quite bored with it. She, she said she wanted more, you know, she, she had a boyfriend, she was on the basketball team. She went to formal and homecoming and all those things, but she, she always wanted more for herself and uh, had, you know, aspirations. Well, imagine if you had had a taste of celebrity, if you had had a taste of being on television, if you had a taste of fame and wealth, and then you were you were asked to like go back to high school, yeah, that'd be a really difficult adjustment. Like I that can't imagine. There, there's such an intoxication to fame. There's such an intoxication to wealth that all of a sudden being in like gym class, I don't think you would be <laughs> able to to produce that same level <laughs> of like dopamine in your brain. No, especially when like, that's what she was working towards and then got a taste of it. And then it would be really hard to go backwards. High school just sucks. I mean, I think it is just a testament to her humanity that she just, she found it stupid. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. It's very reasonable thing to, to conclude about high school. That's for sure. Yeah. And so she was back in high school and then eventually she auditioned um, for Jive Records for some exe- executives there, uh, and at each, age, oh, no, sorry, age 15, actually, she was signed um, with them and really like almost immediately took off. So her first two albums 
were certified diamond in the US. Uh, that was baby one more time. And then a year later, oops, I did it again. Like global successes, two of the best selling albums of all time. I don't know if she still is, but she was definitely the best selling teenage art. I think she's still the best selling teenage artist of all time. But of course, that that success of those albums didn't come out of nowhere. Uh, she had been touring shopping malls across the United States, promoted by like Sunglass Hut. The A lot of the songs on that first album were written by Carl Sandberg, a.k.a. Max Martin. Now, this, I think, could almost be a conspiracy episode of itself. But so much of pop culture, so much of the songs that are pumping out of dorm rooms and car windows were all written by one middle-aged Swedish man. This guy, Max Martin, he wrote a ton of stuff for Taylor Swift, Ariana Grande, Backstreet Boys. He worked with Coldplay, The Weeknd, Katy Perry. Like if you had a list of all of the songs that came out of this one middle-aged Swedish guy, you would be absolutely shocked. This, This one sort of unknown person has this outsized influence. It's like he's hacked into pop culture brain and figured out the algorithm for what a pop song should sound like. And he just pumps them out. I heard the same thing, but not ju- not about just one guy's name, but about this group of songwriters called The Matrix, who wrote both for Britney Spears and for Korn. Right. Which gave yeah. you wow. a sense. Completely different. This, yeah, like it was just, and this was part of my kind of underlying critique of a lot of pop culture products is that it really is just a product. It's like a label on a t-shirt. And it's like, oh, you're you identifying this way. Boom. Here's that T-shirt labeled for you. And you identify this way. Boom. Here's a T-shirt identified for you. The Matrix. Max Martin wasn't part of the Matrix, but I think Dr. Luke was part of the Matrix. Well, Lee was saying about it being a product and that being a critique. Let's sort of explore that a little bit. So, yes, it is. So then teenagers and kids are finding meaning in it, though. They're finding like, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, they're finding community in it. I they're mean, finding community in it. They're relating to it, and and it's one of those examples. Like all, any art form, the, it can be very specific. It can it can account for a very specific experience. But the more specific you get, the more universal it is. In a mm-hmm. way, like everyone's been there. Everyone's felt that. So in a way, it's just really another form of that. And albeit in a in a, a very like producty way. Um, but it still captures that same essence that a lot of art forms do. Yeah, it's amazing how many people you'll hear say that when they heard Britney Spears music, they felt like it was more okay to be themselves. And even though right. they might not have been anything like Britney Spears, just the fact that she was out there singing and they're like, well, that makes me feel like there's, there's like somebody who, who understands me. And this is such a crucial part of celebrity and pop culture. And, and totally. something like that can literally save the life of somebody going through the hell of high school or after high school. Yeah. Life can be so isolating and so alienating that when you have a voice that you think speaks to you, it's unbelievably powerful. Yeah. And that's why people form that kind of, like, they think they have this kind of strong connection or intimacy with these figures. And it wasn't just the music. It was this whole phenomenon. Like she was everywhere. She was on the cover of magazines. She was uh, on the, on like t-shirts and posters. And she was, she was absolutely everywhere. And there was something about this that was sort of disturbing. Uh, I remembered it being disturbing at the time, but when we look back at it from today, it's even weirder. I want to read you guys something that's going to give you both the creeps. This is a Rolling Stone article that came out in 1999 by Stephen Daly. And I'm just going to read the first paragraph of this. Britney Spears extends a honeyed thigh across the length of the sofa, keeping one foot on the floor as she does so. Her blonde streaked hair is piled high, exposing two little diamond earrings on each earlobe. Her face is fully made up, down to carefully applied lip liner. The logo of Spears' pink t-shirt is distended by her ample chest, and her silky white shorts, with dark blue piping, cling snugly to her hips. She cocks her head and smiles receptively. I want to point out, he is talking about a 17-year-old kid. That's creepy and gross. Wasn't there also an interview where she was asked about if she had had sex or not and stuff like that too? I forget who did that Constantly. interview, but yeah. And actually that's what I was going to get to after this idea of her like becoming the world's most powerful celebrity by 2002, but it wasn't without like the, the intense interest she generated was mixed, right? Sure. She was this huge celebrity and so many, especially girls 
loved her, but the interest she generated was not all positive because she was criticized for her, um, her high school, like her racy quote unquote racy outfits, her like um, cutesy sexualized schoolgirl theme and her videos. And it very much got extended to her persona as a whole. And she was deeply criticized for her choices in things she was wearing. And the example you give, like that's not even, that's not Brittany doing any of that. She's just wearing what she wants to wear. But this description is so highly sexualized in like to such a, you know, a minute degree. That's gross. And the whole time there was this tension between this sort of manufactured innocence where she had to be super pure and she had to be, oh, I'm waiting for marriage and I'm pro-virginity. But at the same time, there was also this sort of produced sexuality where she's in tiny schoolgirl uniforms. She was just a 17-year-old kid who had not had time to figure herself out or become a person yet. What's the whole sort of dichotomy that often... What's the word I'm looking for? That phrase. Uh, Sometimes it's referred to as the virgin and the whore. The virgin and the whore, this kind of dichotomy, like as if there's no in-between either, right? Like it's either one or the other, very black and white. And at the time, there were a lot of boy bands that were popular too, as part of this like teen pop era. And none of them were ever sexualized in the same way. It always falls on females. Yeah. Like I can't imagine that Rolling Stones article being written about Justin Timberlake. Right. His hair glistening in the sun as he moistens his lips. Or like to mention his thigh. Justin Timberlake's thighs glistened in the pale moonlight. Right? Yeah. No, it's not. Yeah. So it's like women aren't, females aren't allowed to use, to also have any empowered sexuality. Right. It's always meant to be an object. It can't be sexual. The way she's represented is then it translate in, it translates into her treatment. It translates into a lack of, autonomy or listen, even like literally listening to her when she's trying to tell paparazzi to leave her alone. It translates into a lack of privacy because people feel like they have, they should have access to her. You know, it translates into like patronizing treatment of her who, yes, sure. She, she probably, she suffers from some mental illness that we don't know exactly about, but it, it translates into basically her like autonomy being stripped away. Um, and we'll get into some details about that, how really, it, it doesn't match up with the way she has been, uh, her life has been controlled. So her and Justin dated for three years. Uh, after it ended in 2002, he released a very popular song, Cry Me a River. And in the video for that, there's a lookalike, like a Britney Spears lookalike. And the implication in this video is that she cheated on him. And so it fueled these rumors that she had cheated on him. There was no evidence for that. No one ever come out, came out to say that that was the case. And she was deeply judged and criticized for this implication that that wasn't even like Justin didn't even say anything. It was just implied through this video. He didn't deny it when asked about it either. It also brings up this bizarre aspect. I mean, we've all been in relationships with people and some of them have gone well and some of them have gone poorly and some of them we've handled well, and some of them we haven't handled as well as we should have, and we've learned because we're all flawed human beings. Now, imagine if all of that was done on the public stage. Oh, man. No, I don't want to. (laughs) I don't want to either. It sounds awful. There is an amazing privilege to anonymity. As much as we want fame, if you actually think about what the ramifications of fame would be, it would actually be kind of horrifying. I was thinking about this a couple of years back when a friend of mine had died. So I was in kind of rough shape. I'd been at a pub. I had been having a, a few pints of beer by myself and people were leaving me alone, which was good because I wanted to be left alone because I was grieving and I was sad. And I remember walking home at night by myself and there was no one out in the streets. And it, and it, it enabled me to sort of deal with my own feelings and deal with my own thoughts and just sort of deal with my own self. Now, if At that moment, a bunch of cars had pulled up and started like taking photographs and flashbulbs and going off. I don't know how well I would have reacted, but I'm going to guarantee you I would have reacted really poorly. Yeah. Well, think about anytime you're saturated, like emotionally saturated and the littlest thing happens or something bothers you, like you don't have the capacity to deal with it in that moment. So, yeah, if you have all these flashbulbs, people in your face, like there's there's definitely a lot of elements that that leads up to the kind of um, reactions that we see Brittany take that eventually really lead up to this conservatorship as well. 
Yeah, and we're sort of heading in that direction. At this point, chronologically, we're in about what, like 2002, 2003. At this point, yeah. she's sort of she's sort of peak pop culture. Uh, there's been all sorts of iconic moments. Uh, she's danced around with a snake uh, for the MTV Video Awards. Of course, uh, she kissed Madonna, which which caused all sorts of people to clutch their pearls and and faint <laughs> onto their couches because it was yeah. so. Oh my goodness, heavens to Betsy. But we start to see some of the sort of the cracks come through the facade. And around 2004, uh, I don't know if you guys remember this, she got married to a childhood friend in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. And, and this was treated as some sort of like a hysterical joke. And there was a lot of, a lot of comedians and uh, the late show hosts were all sort of laughing about it. And it only, the marriage only lasted 55 hours later. Because there was a petition to the court, and I think this is going to be important for where we're going with this. There was a petition to the court that Spears, quote, lacked understanding of her actions, which meant that she wasn't sort of cognizant enough to be able to realize that she was getting married. And that's, that's sort of a creepy thing when you start to think about it. Now, not too long after that, she becomes engaged to uh, another character who shows up in her life, a backup dancer named Kevin Federline, or as we know him, K-Fed. K-Fed. And they get married in September. And we know all sorts of stuff about their relationship because it was the early 2000s. And so, of course, there was a reality TV show made of it. And they only actually knew each other for three months at that point when they got engaged. Yeah. And he, I think, had just had, he had recently broken up with an actress, Char Jackson, who was still pregnant with their second child at the time that he became engaged to Britney Spears. What yeah, a guy. So, uh, again, imagine that this is just pure tabloid fodder, but yeah. rather, but it also shows you the weird relationship that celebrities have with, with tabloid culture, because rather than sort of leaning away from that, rather than pulling back and trying to be sort of more private about it, instead, they turn it into a, like a literal reality show in 2005 called Britney and Kevin Chaotic. I, I read a review of the show and the reviewer said that it was, quote, an insult to common sense and decency, end quote. <laughs> Brittany herself said years later that it was uh, probably the worst thing she's done in her career. Yeah, because of course it was, because it's a terrible idea. But I mean, I wonder where that line is. Like, let's say you're getting harassed anyways, and your your relationship is under such deep scrutiny. Would you at least feel like you might have some control over it by having the cameras? At least you're making a little bit of coin off of it. You know what I mean? And it's like, okay, well, at least... I can maybe control what's going on, what they see versus just kind of all the speculation and, and harassment. Would either of you ever want to have a, a reality show made of your lives? Never. Absolutely no. not. I've never been so certain of anything. I would take an airplane flight every day for the next year if it could keep me off of a reality show. And of course, regular listeners know that Lee is terrified of flying in planes. You know, yeah. like, I, although I would watch a Lee reality show. <laughs> I mean, it would no, be you wouldn't. Yeah. no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. It's the most boring show you could ever imagine. It's me reading and then Watching occasionally Bre- brewing your yeah. tea, brewing your coffee. Exactly. Making dinner yeah. for the kids. Yeah. You know, that's Gardening. it. Like, it's so boring. But and yet it's it's the pleasure of it is that it's private. But yes. here's an interesting thing, Lee. If there was a reality show made up of your life, would you feel an obligation? Would you feel a pressure? to try to make it more interesting, to try to change the way you were living. I would try and hide from the cameras. Yeah. The whole notion of celebrity is for me an utter nightmare. It's awful. I, I, I get some of the tertiary benefits of being a celebrity, uh, the wealth, the kind of ease with which you can get projects uh, through the door, you know, if you want to start something. But the whole business about people knowing who you are and knowing what your life is about or thinking that they do, it reminds me a lot about what I imagine are the worst qualities of living in a small village. You know, one of the beauties of the metropolis is the anonymity that you get. And in a way, it feels like, you know, people often idealize the village life as being just you know, so romantic and you know your neighbors and and they watch out for your children. But the dark side of village life is that everybody's gossiping. Everybody knows what's going on behind closed doors or they don't and they make stuff up. And when a rumor takes hold in a village about you, 
there's nothing you can do to stop it. And you become persecuted in a way that is almost impossible for non-celebrities in an urban setting. Maybe now with the advent of social media, that's different again. But there is something really freeing about anonymity. And I, that's always something that's, that's completely confounded me about celebrity culture is why would anybody want this? It, it just sounds like a nightmare. But I feel like, Elena, you'll have a different perspective on this. Like, Elena, you, you've oh, yeah, had... We are talking to a bona fide celebrity. Yeah, no, it's true. No, you're not. You've had TikTok videos that have received over a million views. I have, yeah. So what, um, what's your perspective on this? Oh, that's a good point. Uh, well, you end up definitely getting... You end up getting comments you don't want sometimes, that's for sure. Um, you get, you know, people kind of trolling, um, saying nasty things from, you know, from time to time. But then you also get people who do kind of feel like they know you. And I'm, again, not even being like famous in any, of any, in any way, but, you know, you get people reaching out and feeling like they, you know, have some connection to you because their stories may be similar to yours. Or and projecting actually, something I, onto you. Or project something onto you. But I do love, I do love that part in a way, like when people reach out because something has connected to them. Um, but it can, you know, it can also be a little a little too much sometimes depending. Um, so I understand that there's like a mixed, a mixed experience, but I mean, nothing on the level of these people. So another key difference is that because you're doing this on social media, you're producing it. Yes. You're in control yeah. of it. You're editing it. You're deciding what goes out and what doesn't go out. So, okay, now, so where are we? Now I think we're, we're, now we're going to hit decline. So if this was a documentary rather than a podcast, this would be that moment where it kind of switches to black and white and it kind of zooms in on something ominous and you get some kind of creepy music and then you go to commercial. Because unfortunately, this is the point around 2006, 2007, where this sort of this sort of this Hollywood presentation of what it means to be Britney Spears starts to really collapse. Uh, in 2006, uh, the paparazzis, which are constantly swarming around Spears, uh, they take a photograph when she has her newborn baby in her lap as she's driving. And of course, this is illegal. And it's also people said this was irresponsible. People started asking questions as to whether she was a fit mother. Hold on. I just want to add one point about the when she was driving with her with her son on her lap. Um, so this detail sometimes gets left out. But she she was actually escaping a situation like a, what she described as a frightening situation with um, paparazzi. So I think she just like tried to just get out of there fast and happened to have her child on her lap, which I know is not a great thing. But yeah, child advocates were outraged. She has a second kid in September. And then that year, November of 2006, she separates from Kevin Federline. In 2007, she divorces him with joint custody of her sons. And the whole time this is happening, she's still pumping out album. She's still on MTV Video Awards. But now there's been a switch. Now she isn't sort of the darling that we're all excited about propping up. Now she's sort of the sacrifice that pop culture starts to sharpen its claws on. I'm reminded now as sort of the tide is turning against her of some notions that I've worked a lot on in my own academic career with my own interest, um, at least uh, a while ago, was how religious concepts remain operative in putatively non-religious societies. So in secular society, contemporary political society of North America, Western Europe, which sees itself very much as post-religion, even though there's religious elements within it, it's the political culture isn't religious. Nonetheless, you have a lot of these concepts, religious concepts, operative. And one of the core ones is the notion of sacrifice. Um, you see this a lot in the justification of wars or the justification of some kind of terrible choice that has to be made. I see a parallel here with celebrity culture and building up. I think it's the um, Australians who have this notion of, the, of chopping down the tall poppy, which they talk about in terms of this way of dealing with celebrities that get too big is the celebrity, you kind of build them up, they get bigger and bigger. And then at some point, there's a pleasure in taking them down. There's a certain kind of built up revenge lust 
You know, this person is living this. I, I, you know, I don't think it's an idyllic life, but it's certainly presented as an idyllic life of money and sex and youth and freedom and excitement and parties. And this is, you know, what is being broadcast every single day. And on the one hand, sort of, I think the collective impact is one of envy and of envious identification. And then there comes a point where you take them down and it feels really good. And the Germans have a word for this, of course, schadenfreude, the enjoyment you take in somebody else's suffering or bad things that happen to them. You see it a lot in celebrity culture. And it feels like this is what's going on with Britney Spears. She has now become the sacrificial victim. Uh, At a social level, we build them up and then we take them down and we enjoy the process. And I think that moment for Britney was when, and she very sort of publicly and iconically shaved her head in that hair salon in in LA. And and leading up to that though, as Nathan mentioned, was um, the filing for divorce. And then shortly after that, her aunt who uh, died of ovarian cancer, she was very close to her. She stayed in a drug rehab facility for like a day or two shortly after that. And then after she was released from there, she kept saying that she didn't want anyone to touch her. Something about her body, like she was really like, nobody touched me like this. She, she was, um, she asked someone to cut her hair first and then they refused to do it. The hairdresser refused to do it. And she just went and took the clippers herself and did it. But she was very adamant that like she have some, some space because she had been harassed by the paparazzi that night as well. She had recently also lost access to her two boys through the divorce as well. And she just completely just kind of did her, like, well, I don't know how to describe it. How would you describe it, Nathan? It was, it was like a kind of public sacrifice because we have it all on film. We mm-hmm. have a picture because she was being swarmed by paparazzi. So she goes into the, the hairdresser. And uh, as Elena says, the hairdresser refused to, to cut her hair. Although later on that hairdresser would try to sell that hair for a million dollars. Oh my so. God. Because celebrity is weird and gross. And then as she's shaving it, it's just constant photograph after photograph after photograph. And and apparently was saying that she was tired of being touched. And then the same night is when she um, attacks the paparazzi car with her umbrella, right? I think her head was shaved at that point. They were following her around. And of course, those photographs became famous because it's yeah. Brittany, newly shaven head. She she looks a little disoriented. She looks a little angry and she's attacking the paparazzo's a car with her umbrella. And out of context, it's like, hey, it's framed as like, hey, look at this crazy woman attacking this car with an umbrella. Of course, when you get the context, all of us have to ask ourselves, what would we have done with that umbrella in that case? And I'm telling you what I would have done. I would have attacked the car with the umbrella. It was completely wild. Like it would make anyone kind of lose it. The intense attention. Plus she's going through this emotional turmoil has an underlying mental mental illness as well that is receiving no attention, right? This is all just given no context. She's represented as just kind of losing it. And so there's no concern for her mental health as well, which clearly was suffering at the time. You know, what's funny and getting back to a more conspiratorial mindset, uh, often with celebrities like this, when, when things like this start to happen, you see a lot of people make the hypothesis that, ah, this is somehow related to like MK Ultra. These celebrities have been experimented on. Back in the days when the Illuminati was still kind of a, a prime conspiracy theory, people would say, look, this is evidence that they're under control of the Illuminati. Uh, what's fascinating and tragic about this is you don't need MK Ultra to explain events like this from a celebrity because being a celebrity is in itself a kind of bizarre mind control experiment. Being a celebrity is unhealthy for people. We, we can't cope with it. Something Lee was saying earlier about the, the difficulties of living in a small town. Nobody can deal with their small town being the entire world. Especially when that small town decides to gang up on you. Yeah, which, which of course it does. When your community turns on you, however that gets defined today, you know, being your fans and the paparazzi and the kind of media that forms this bubble that entraps you. And, and that becomes essentially, you know, who you're interacting with. And, and, and when that turns on you, what have you got left? You got, I mean, she has nothing left, does she? She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have her kids. Her parents 
seemed to be part of the exploitation mechanism from the beginning. You, you um, can't necessarily trust anyone's motivations because you're worth so much. Yeah. And so you can't tell when somebody, and this is part of the reason that being a celebrity is so unhealthy, is that you're surrounded by people who you can't tell how they feel about you because they could be pretending because you have so much money. And so celebrities, do you guys remember when Michael Jordan grew a little Hitler mustache? No. When was that? It was like a, a few, it was like a decade ago. And it was oh, okay. So moment. long past his actual basketball playing. Time. Yeah, it was past. Yeah, it was past. Okay. That. No, then I don't remember. But there's a situation where if you're not a celebrity and you grow a little Hitler mustache, somebody who cares about you is going to slap that mustache off your face. If you're a celebrity. You're going to be surrounded by people like, looks good. Looking good, Mike. Yeah. It's like if you're a pop culture phenomenon like Britney Spears, you're creating a kind of financial ecosystem. And when you're on the way up, that ecosystem is filled with parasites. Mm-hmm. Hangers on, lawyers, agents, paparazzi, stylists, trainers, gurus, and they're feeding off your fame. When you're on your way down, that ecosystem is now filled with scavengers and they are picking the corpse of your fame. And the paparazzi are still there, but now instead of sort of celebrating all of your lavish lifestyle and excitement, now they're trying to chronicle your downfall and they're just picking your bones. And then you get the Svengali's, these people who try to come in and manipulate you. It's it's a horrifying scene. And so I guess that, I mean, that leads us right to, so this is her very public breakdown. This is the, you know, the scavenger moment. I think she had two separate hospitalizations under psychiatric hold. And one was after she refused to surrender her sons. She, she essentially had a standoff with police in 2007 as well. And so then really it's the year, year later, 2008, when we see this conservatorship be established. Now, this is unique. Like, had either of you heard of a conservatorship before Britney Spears? No, well, I, I heard of the idea, like the idea that you would have a ward because they were unable to take care of themselves. I mean, the idea of a conservatorship, a person who's deemed incapable of managing their own financial affairs or daily life is placed under the care and control of a conservator. And that conservatorship might apply to the estate of the person. So like financial mm-hmm. matters and or the, the person of the person, like day-to-day personal matters. And in the case of Britney Spears, both her estate and her person are both made wards of yeah. her father. Yes, it applies to both. And so, like you said, this conservatorship is usually reserved solely for people who are unable to make their own decisions, like someone with severe mental illness or with dementia. Someone in there a coma. Was a, yeah, exactly. And there was a rumor that Jamie Spears, her dad, had claimed she had dementia. And as part of the, um, like the, the justification for this and listening to this, um, Adam Streisand, her former lawyer, who, by the way, so he was first her lawyer when this, uh, the conservatorship was first, well, there was discussion about it and she had hired him and they had had consultations and she was very adamant about, uh, not wanting her father to be in charge, to be at the head of this conservatorship. But he said she seemed very reasonable. Uh, She understood that this was probably going to have to happen. And then down the road, they could try and, uh, you know, reverse it. That there were, you know, she seemed to understand that things were out of control at the moment and there needed to be something, you know, put in place just in the meantime. And then he showed up to court and basically the judge presented some document from a doctor saying that she was unable to hire her own, you know, her own lawyers and so he just believed the court, trusted the court and, you know, basically had to resign as her as her lawyer. But one thing that stands out to him in, in what happened subsequently was the fact that the court appointed lawyer never advocated for her about not having her father in charge of the conservatorship, because as a lawyer, your job is to advocate for your client. And that is what she was very adamantly saying to him as, as, you know, as her first lawyer. And so this is one thing that really stood out to him as being very bizarre that his, that her next, her, her lawyer that came after that never held strong to that and advocated for her about that point. Oh, I was going to just say that this seems to be the real crux of the conspiracy now, right? Because when we talk about conservatorships with respect to somebody in a coma, this seems like a necessary step in order to protect their property and to take care of them. Of course, I can imagine, even in cases in somebody's in a coma, 
that a family member might take advantage of this. But when you have a super valuable celebrity whose value is not just in the records they're selling, but all the tertiary products and even the tabloids and things like that are making money off of her, it seems like there is a potential to abuse the conservatorship role, taking over essentially some famous person's estate and their image and everything. Look at it this way. Uh, There was a co-conservatorship, her father, and there was also a lawyer involved with the ridiculous name of Andrew Wallet. Wallet, give me a break. Like if I was writing this as a movie, I wouldn't give that character that name because it's too on the nose. Now, Wallet's making about $400,000 a year. Now, that's money that's coming from Britney's estate to pay him. That seems like an awful lot of money to manage this. In 2018, he asks for a raise. Wallet refers to the conservatorship as, quote, a hybrid business model. That's not what this is designed for. This isn't designed to be a money-making enterprise. This is designed to help look after somebody who can't look after themselves. But at the same time, the whole time that she's in this conservatorship, she's doing TV work. She's opening MTV Video Awards. She's winning awards. She's releasing her sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth albums and going on tours. She's a judge on the X Factor. She starts to date her agent because who else is she going to meet? She's going to meet agents and paparazzi and people like that. And after she starts dating her agent, Jason Trawick, he becomes a co-conservator. I wouldn't be comfortable being in a relationship with somebody who I'm also the ward of. No, there's so many conflicts of interest involved in this too. And this is a point you just brought up is another thing that Streisand brings up about her. She, she's a high functioning individual. She's performing, she's productive. And so it is very weird for someone like that to have a conservatorship. And another thing he brings up is how hard they are to obtain. Like you have to have a lot of convincing evidence that the person needs it, that they can't manage their own affairs. And that there's no other uh, less restrictive way to achieve the same ends. Like, could they have just had a trustee over her funds? Could they have just had a power of attorney for her healthcare decisions? Like, were there less restrictive ways that you could have protected her? And I'm guessing the answer was yes. So it is still very weird that the conservatorship went through. Like, I don't know what this clear and convincing evidence was. Um, and like you said, confident. because it was clear that, she, yeah, she's confident and to she's make performing. hundreds of millions of dollars for people in this very public arena. You might have a situation where somebody does, in fact, need a conservatorship, but then it gets abused. On the other hand, the whole thing could be made up such that one could abuse one's position in, of authority there and siphon off the wealth for oneself. So how, what is your read on this, both of you? I could even see it as being partly both. Like an over justification or misrepresentation misrepresentation of her abilities at the time that the conservatorship was established. And part of that being someone like her dad seeing it as maybe a business opportunity or a way to manage her money, but also get some of that money like, uh, and, and being able to control how much money she makes by essentially well, in some ways, almost forcing her to perform some things that she might not have even wanted to. Um, so I can see it being potentially partly both. What happens, I, th- I think this really develops the conspiratorial part in 2019. In 2019, Spears cancels a planned, another planned Las Vegas residency, uh, where she'd basically be working at a Las Vegas hotel and she'd be doing shows like maybe a uh, hundred shows in, in one place and really making a lot of money for a lot of people. Wallet resigns his position, and an anonymous message is left with the host of the podcast, Britney's Graham. Basically, this podcast just went over Britney Spears' Instagram and talked about how she used emojis and sort of tried to parse all of her statements. But then they get this message from an alleged whistleblower who claims he used to be one of Britney's legal team members. And he argues that Britney's father was the one who had canceled Las Vegas shows because Spears was refusing to take the meds that they were trying to force on her and that she had been sent to a psychiatric facility against her will after driving a car in January of that year. Because their argument was, you're not allowed to drive a car, and so if you drive a car, we're going to send you to a psychiatric facility. And this this is where the hashtag Free Britney starts to show up, because people then start to become very concerned about this conservatory uh, aspect and say, well, wait a second, like what is actually going on here? 
is this designed to protect her or is this designed to exploit her? And it's interesting because a lot of these early speculations by the Free Britney movement, some of them have now been been shown to be true. Like Britney herself testified to some of them being the case. Like it would have seen, it seemed bizarre when the conspiracy theorists said things like, oh, Britney, you know, can't have a baby, isn't allowed to do these things, can't drive her car. And, you know, first hearing that, you're like, come on, she's so powerful. She's so rich. It seems unbelievable. She's Britney, bitch. She's Britney, bitch, right? So it's like, (laughs) but then it turns out that a lot of these, these theories were true. A lot of these details of the theories, I should say, are true. Yeah, a lot of them. I mean, some of them, this is the thing about the free Britney movement that kind of develops is that it's it's basing itself on some degree to these legal documents. There's some like genuine good work going on there, but a lot of it is speculation based on trying to read into Instagram posts, which is tricky to do. I mean, Britney's Instagram posts, have you guys looked over these? Yes, they are for the most part, very bizarre and disturbing. They're pretty bizarre. They're disturbing. They seem kind of chaotic and random. And of course, one of the things that we know from studying conspiracy theory is that within chaos and, and randomness, we're really good at finding patterns that may or may not be there. So there were a lot of, I think, misfires and a lot of speculation that that wasn't accurate. But Elena's yes. right. This is like, a, I think this score one for internet sleuths, because I think at its heart, the free bit Britney movement was correct. And that something super sketchy was going on here. And something exploitive was going on here, and it needed to be brought into public view. Yeah, a lot of these details did turn out to be true. But as you said about the Instagram post, you'd get, like, for example, Lee, since you probably haven't seen it. So she'd post something, and then there would be thousands of comments. And someone in there of those thousands might say, Brittany, are you okay? If you're not okay, wear a red top in your next video. And then she would happen to wear a red top in her next video. And then they, you know, those viewers went wild saying she did it. She actually wore it. This is proof. So there are a lot of times when like, we don't know, I doubt she waded through 2000 comments and was like, I'm for sure going to do this. But a lot of, a lot of these details were being read into um, and patterns were being made where there weren't necessarily any. There was sort of a debate about whether she was in control of her Instagram feed. Right. That's what I was going to ask. What's hilarious is that her, in, her, her social media manager came out and made a public statement saying, well, no, Britney Spears is completely in, in control of her Instagram feed. And I would have a question at that point. Be like, what was your job title again? Yeah. <laughs> like you're a social media manager. Well, according to her social media manager, she manages her social media. What's the problem? It's yeah. like, it's, it's right there in your job title. This reminds me. I don't know if you have either of you heard about this, but in up until somewhere around the 1960s, I'm not exactly sure all the jurisdictions in the United States where this was a thing, but committing your wife to a mental institution required essentially no more than the husband saying that he thought his wife was nuts. And so it became a kind of convenient way to get rid of unwanted spouses. As Elena said, I don't really see why some kind of ameliorated alternative couldn't be one that was much more in line with rehabilitating her as opposed to kind of entrapping her totally. in the situation. Yeah, um, something. Yeah, it just seems very old fashioned. <laughs> I agree. I think it. I think it does reflect this very like paternalistic attitude towards Brittany for sure. Um, yeah, they have the paperwork. They justify it. She may or may not have even been aware of what was in there. Apparently, she didn't even know this whole time that she could petition the court to end it. Right. Yeah, like it's that, not like the kind who, of thing you tell you somebody know? you've just locked up in your basement, right? That but like, like, who is advising her? How like that that she hasn't known, um, you know, her own rights. So she's here trying to like research it herself to figure out what she is and is not able to do. Well, I mean, this is speculation on my part, but it seems to me likely that the professionals that surround her likely benefit from the system the way it is now and don't necessarily require some kind of change to it because they're probably financially, they're probably doing very well as, as it stands. And one of the things that makes this so problematic is that once you are made a ward, what there should be is there should be some sort of system where there's like every 18 months, every two years, whatever it is, that you have to then prove to the courts that the person should remain a ward. 
And if you can't prove to the courts that the person should remain a ward, that conservatorship should be dismantled. What happens totally. instead is that the ward, the, the onus of responsibility is on them to prove that they don't need to be one, which is the opposite of how court systems ordinarily work as far as things like guilt go. And so it's, it's very difficult to prove something like that. But Brittany, I mean, I'm, I'm plugged in enough to know that she did come out recently and testified against the conservatorship. So, I mean, I already was feeling when, Elena, you were telling us about the Twitter feed. I'm like, why is she not using social media to broadcast her imprisonment? But okay, now she does have the opportunity to speak publicly. What does she say? What does she come out and say, I have been held captive against my will. I need to be freed. Basically, yeah. Oh my God. She be, I'm not even joking. That's why I thought you would be shocked. She, first of all, when you think about like victims speaking out and things, she said herself, you know, I was afraid to say anything earlier. First of all, she said I was kind of in denial and I was kind of trying to fake it till I make it, like pretend things are okay and I'm happy, but I'm not. I cry every day because she, she even mentioned like Paris Hilton recently came out with some accusations of, of abuse at the school she was at. And Brittany admits, she's like, you know, when Paris came out and said things, I didn't believe her. So I was terrified that if I said things, people would think I was nuts and I was lying and I was making it up and that I would not be believed, which is just so sad too, right? Yeah, the accounts she gives are, so basically no sort of privacy of her person at all. There's always people around her. She can't drive. She can't go for a drive with her boyfriend. She can't just go. She even has friends who live like, eight minutes away that I think we're in her AA program, which would probably have been really helpful to like have the support. She's not allowed to visit them. She has an IUD in her body that they won't let her, they won't like bring her to the doctor that she can get removed because she actually does want to have another child. She, what are some other things, Nathan? I'm sure you have a list too. I got a list here. I got to look at them. A lot of it has to do with how much she was forced to work. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and, at that and point, it starts to yeah. get really, dis- I mean, it doesn't start to get really disturbing. It is clearly extremely disturbing. The, the stuff about ha- not having control over your own reproductive system is straight up horror show. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the laws are in the United States, but I don't think that's legal in Canada. Uh, even if you are institutionalized in a psychiatric ward. Although that's a recent change. I've met people who were involuntarily sterilized Sterilized. in institutions. Yeah. Like that was happening in Canada up until pretty recently. Yeah. So that fits with like, if they, if she were to truly be, you know, under this conservatorship for valid reasons, why they might, that, that they might, you know, have some sort of control like that. But Absolutely, like against her will, forced to take lithium. They started giving her lithium, changing up from her regular meds. And she was like, I felt drunk. I couldn't even hold a conversation with anyone, like just feeling completely out of control of her own body. And what you mentioned before, Nathan, about her being about all the performance, a lot of the performances too would be like, here, sign this basically to perform with the implied condition that if you sign this, you can see your kids again. Maybe some things will lighten up in terms of your restrictions. Like it was very much a part of, it's a what would you call down. that? Yeah, it's a shakedown. It's not quite blackmail, but it's like this uh, kind of a threat there. Or if she didn't say yes, she was worried that she'd be like punished in some way if she didn't agree to perform or agree to some sort of appearance. So like really just bizarre things going on behind so the scenes. So clearly when this information is finally brought to light, she is forcibly like the, the the cops run in and they rescue her. Is is this not what happens? This is what should happen if there's any claims of abuse in this. So way, is she back in the conservatorship? Like is she's she just still like locked up again? She never left it. She literally just called in to make this testimony from her home. And so you can even hear in her testimony, she's like speaking so fast. They had to ask her to slow down a few times. Because you can tell she's just trying to get it all out, you know, and like sounds very anxious. And she even says at the end of the call, she's like, you know, I'm I kind of don't want to get off this. Like when I hang up this phone, I'm still basically here living my life the way, I, you know, I have for the, been for the last 13 years. So, yeah, there was no, you know, whisking away, uh, breaking down her doors to to. Does to she have any kind of independent 
representation now? Is there a lawyer who is actually advocating for her or is it just two lawyers from her dad? <laughs> one who's well, yeah. taking it? Well, people are starting to resign actually as of this week after her testimony, her lawyer, Samuel Ingham, who I don't know how he was. I don't know that he was doing a good job before, but he's now resigned her longtime manager, Larry Rudolph, resigned. Uh, the Bessemer Trust, who had had like co-conservatorship over her finances with Jamie, with her dad, uh, is asking to be removed as well. So I think there's now this push for people to step back and, and try and respect her wishes, even if the court isn't doing it at the moment. The people who are involved, like her manager, I think he said he hasn't even spoken to her in a couple of years because she hasn't been performing. But Hopefully, this is a sign that people are trying to give her more space to have autonomy. But really, it's up to the court still at this point. So what? where are we in the courts? And her next court date is July 14th. I don't know uh, what the content of that is going to be. Uh, what was the basis for denying the end of the conservatorship? This is the issue of the onus of evidence. Like it becomes extremely difficult for somebody once they become a ward to argue against being a ward. And there's all sorts of reasons for this. One is the idea that once somebody has the stigma of mental illness on them, anything they do, like this was very powerful testimony that she gave, and it probably worked against her because it was powerful emotional testimony. Mm -hmm. And so then it could be argued, well, listen to how emotional she is. Clearly, she totally. is not in control. Clearly, she is, you know, she's not calm. She's, she's not rational. Ignoring the fact that as we've been talking about all along, you put any of us in a situation like this, and we're probably going to react in that way. I, I mean, and none of us know really what's going on. We don't know these people. We feel like we do because they're celebrities. At the very least, though, the suggestion that I would make is that the conservatorship should be taken from her father and given to some other entity. Mm -hmm. Because I, I can't reconcile the degree to which they're arguing that she's incompetent with the amount of work that she has been doing and the amount of money that she's been making for everybody. Yeah. And I think her dad isn't a, you know, a positive figure at all. I think he's been controlling and he always kind of has been in her life. Doesn't have her best interest in mind, has business in mind. And he's wants to manage this product that Brittany became from an, from a young age. And this is kind of the way to do it. Nathan, what's your take? My take uh, goes back to, what we opened with. My take is that we sort of treat these pop culture icons as a kind of, uh, as kind of gods, that their lives are bigger than our lives, that their actions are somehow bigger than all of our actions. But the truth is that celebrities aren't gods. Celebrities are humans and humans are fragile, flawed, messy creatures. And I think that there's a real terror in what happens when somebody has to not only be a flawed human being like we all are, but also an industry, also a corporation. Lee, you mentioned schadenfreude. What would be the German word for schadenfreude generator? Huh. I have to get back to you on it. Because um, we need that word. Yeah. We need that word because that's one of the roles that she started to play in our society. Everyone was able to sharpen their claws on her. Uh, I think back to a Schadenfreude Kraftwerk. Kraftwerk. Yeah, Kraftwerk. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Okay, Remember so the like the band. Like the band. Right. So she's a Schadenfreude Kraftwerk. And I, I think back when she was in the midst of all of like her 2007 meltdown, when she was shaving her head and attacking the car with umbrellas and stuff. And it just seemed like there was a celebration of this in pop culture. People were so excited about it. And then there was one guy. Craig Ferguson, who was a talk show host, uh, I think from Scotland, mm -hmm. and he did a monologue, which was, I th which has aged, I think, extremely well in the way that that gross Rolling Stone article has aged like yogurt. I think the Craig Ferguson monologue has aged really well in which he said, wait a second, she's a person. She has children. She's going through a hard time. Everybody goes through hard times. Like maybe instead of celebrating her skill as a schadenfreude Kraftwerk, we should just figure out how to help her because of course, Craig Ferguson had also struggled with substance abuse and alcoholism and things like that. And he said, I, I don't know what she's going through, but I know she's going through something. And maybe if we were better as a society, rather than celebrating it, we would sort of allow people to get better. 
we should always be punching up at power, not punching yeah. down at weakness. Most of the damage comes from anonymous people getting very small kicks, which in and of themselves are pretty much unnoticeable. And it's just the cumulative effect of that. And as long as that condition remains, you can have all the conscientious objectors you want. The anonymity is going to ensure that that vacuum is immediately filled by some other comedian, you know, and that comedian's hits will get more hits on Facebook and wherever the platforms are than the comedian who takes that conscientious decision. So the system makes up for any individual ethical choices we make. And I mean, I'm in the same boat, right? Like I, I find the whole phenomenon of celebrity necessarily destroys people's lives. And I'm just personally not that interested in doing it. But I can tell you as the experience of a long-term vegetarian, your opting out of the system makes zero difference. All the meat that I didn't eat was just thrown away. It didn't save the life of any cow. And the same way, so I feel like there's some, some deeper rot in the system. There's a whole industry though built around titillating anonymous viewers, sort of voyeurs in the shadows. And yeah, we sacrifice a bunch of people's lives for that. I'm gonna get us, I'm gonna get us all shirts. <laughs> I, I wear that. I totally yeah. wear that. So I don't want this podcast to end because we're saying goodbye to Elena. So I can, I can be back stretch here it out. I'm just gonna keep talking and talking and talking. She'll pop back in back and we could just there. go to her yeah. backyard and play with her dog. I know. Absolutely. You do need to come over. Gus would be so happy to see BB again. I'll come over. Yeah. But I'll but, mope. Yeah. I'm, I'm warning you now. That's okay. But Moping is okay. Yes. And I'll also, yes, she's a special guest pod person now. Yeah. Well, Elena, it has been an amazing three years. It has. Thanks for bringing me on, guys. These conspiracies with you and the TV and the radio and everything in between. Yeah. Um, I'll still be around academically for, yeah. for, for this stuff. Been I'm not going away. I'm not going away forever. And in the meantime, she can be found at. Oh, my TikTok. It's A-M-P-A-P-A-Y-A. A-M-Papaya. M-Papaya.